Good morning. Man, uh, the news must have gotten out that I was preaching. (laughs) All right. We're going to be in John chapter 20. John chapter 20 will be camped out there. And I'm going to start reading in verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned to him and said, Rabbani, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. In preparation for this sermon, actually, first of all, I'm going to go to the Lord and uh, just ask him to help. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, It is an absolute, absolute privilege to bring your word this morning. It's an awesome task. Lord, I pray that you would be with this man, a man that you know is as fallible as fallible can come. Lord, I pray you would help me today that your word would go forth And Lord, that we would hear you today. Let us have ears to hear. Lord, you are good. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I was asked to preach, um, I was asked, um, and I I had thought, well, I'd like to preach from the Gospel of John. I'd like to 
uh, talk about the disciples. And actually, one aspect that I really wanted to go over is when Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room. And there is a really cool area in there in which um, I believe it's the mobilization of mission. And he gives that to the disciples. And, and I really wanted to do that. And, and really, when I was told that I'd be preaching on Mother's Day, I was like, well, that's so cool. Mobilization of mission. M-O-M. Mom. But as I started reading and looking at this, I actually changed course a bit and decided to uh, preach about the first rec resurrection appearance of Christ. And the question I offer you this morning is, what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ change? What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ change? The simple answer? Everything. A fact powerfully illustrated in the very shape taken by this New Testament book, the Gospel of John. It is, as many people have labeled it, a gospel of signs. Displays of supernatural power that serve to reveal who Jesus truly is. Signs that have been carefully selected, seven of them as a matter of fact, for the purpose of stimulating a response for those who read and hear this gospel, a response, a response more specifically of faith in this Jesus. Now, some have come to different conclusions about what signs are, uh, constitute the seven signs I'm talking about. I come to my list based on, based on what the, when the author John explicitly designates the event as a sign in the text. So in Greek, there's a word called semion, which is the same thing as sign. And so when, when John says this, this is where I come to my list of seven. The first sign, the first Samion, Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. He transforms water into wine at a wedding at Cana, John chapter 2. The second sign Jesus performs is the cleansing of the temple, also in John chapter 2. The third sign... He heals a young boy who is very near death at a place called Capernaum, John chapter 4. The fourth sign, Jesus restores a man to full health who has been paralyzed 38 years, John chapter 5. The fifth sign, he multiplies loaves of bread and, and fish to feed thousands of people, John chapter 6. The sixth sign, Jesus grants sight to a beggar who had been blind since birth, John chapter 9. The seventh sign, then, is Jesus raising to life a man named Lazarus who, who had been dead four days, John chapter 11. Seven signs. In many ways, friends, the Gospel of John is an echo of the very first book of the Bible, the great book of beginnings, Genesis. How does Genesis open? Three simple words. In the beginning. Followed by a creation account built upon a framework of seven days. Six days of creation, followed by a seventh day of rest. 
what is said to exist prior to God's creation, the reign of darkness. Everything chaotic and without form and lifeless. But what happens? God's life-giving word happens, summoning things into existence never before known. Creation. Interestingly enough, John's account here of the life and ministry of Jesus opens with these very same words. In the beginning. Signaling yet another creation account, this time built on a framework of seven signs. Yet ironically, what confronts you when you arrive at the conclusion of the seven signs and subsequently the crucifixion of our Lord in John chapter 19? The very thing that, you, that meets you at the outset of Genesis, it's the reign of darkness. Everything is chaotic, the absence of light. They're two men, they're sequel, secret disciples that in the fading light at the end of chapter 19 are doing what needs to be done, putting Jesus in a cold, dark tomb. And then that's followed by the figurative day, the seventh day of rest in that cold, dark tomb. You say, David, we already know what happens in John chapter 20, right? It's the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Yes. And yet, st many still miss it for what it is. It's the eighth sign occurring on the eighth day, the first day of the week, and it's the happening of the life-giving word once again. It's the inauguration of an entirely new creation. It's the Genesis effect, as it were, a cosmic event of such magnitude that nothing in all of creation will ultimately withstand its overwhelming consequences. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ change? The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Everyone, everywhere, without exception. But for this morning, we're not going to explore the relevance of the resurrection of Jesus in relation to its implications that are cosmic and universal. We'd be here for another two hours and moms would be mad at me. And besides, we do that every Sunday morning before the service in a backroom study, Bible study, shameless plug. We're going through the Gospel of John. If you want to join us, you may in the conference room in the back. 9 a.m., shameless plug. But rather, this morning, I'd very much like for you to think about the relevance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in relationship to the implications that are much more intimate and individual. Ask yourself the question this morning. How has the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed my life? And it's, it's why now I'd like to set before you a question that's even more personal. How can the resurrection of Jesus Christ change you? What can the resurrection of Jesus Christ change for you? Why don't we let the unfolding of the story 
answer this for you. Take a look at verse 10. John chapter 20, verse 10. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So following the, their examination of the empty tomb, the disciples return home. Now, take a look at verse 18, just a little bit further down. We read about the disciples again. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So we have the disciples in, in verse 10 and we have the disciples in verse 18 and squeezed in between the, these bookends is Jesus' first resurrection appearance. To who? Mary Magdalene? I mean, you got to be kidding me, right? Can she be a significant voice in the new creation? I would have put my money on Peter or, or John or even James. Mary Magdalene? But maybe, just maybe, the values of Jesus are, are different than ours. What do we know about this woman? Well, from other gospel accounts, we know that she's been saved from a most terrible life. Jesus freed her from the possession of seven demonic beings. Consequently, she becomes part of a group of women who not only travel with Jesus, but support him financially. She's at Golgotha when Jesus is crucified. She comes to the tomb on the first day of the week while it's still dark to complete the process of caring for the body of Jesus. When she discovers that the giant millstone guarding the mouth of the tomb has been rolled away, she dashes off to tell Peter and John that the grave has been robbed. In turn, they leave Mary in the dust to see for themselves. When they finally do see what is not there to see, they return to where they were before and hide out in abject fear. Mary, meanwhile, she returns to the tomb. And it's to Mary that Jesus first appears. A fact, my friends, that all by itself lends great credibility to this resurrection account. What do I mean? Well, if the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a religious fantasy composed by a sympathetic friend in the first century, you can be absolutely certain that Mary would never be set forth as the person to whom Jesus appears first. This is not America in the 21st century. This is the Middle East in the first century long before the suffrage movement, long before the Equal Rights Amendment. My point, the testimony of a woman carried no weight. It wasn't even admissible in a court of law. So why does Jesus appear to Mary first? My friends, it's an ultimate display of something that Jesus does throughout his entire ministry. He elevates the dignity of women. May I remind you that Jesus frequently heals women, that Jesus often employs women as examples of faith, 
in a culture that discouraged women from studying the law of God, Jesus teaches women alongside men. Though many rabbis suggested that a man should never speak to a woman in a public place, Jesus not only speaks to a Samaritan woman of the deepest of spiritual things, he scandalously drinks from her cup. And here, in his first resurrection appearance, Jesus not only appears to Mary Magdalene, but he commissions her with the task of announcing the implications of the resurrection to his disciples. I mean, my dear friends, if there's some degree of reproach uniquely connected with womanhood because Eve ate the forbidden fruit, there is now a far greater, greater degree of glory connected to womanhood, not only because Mary is given to see Jesus first, but because she becomes, as it were, the apostle to the apostles. It doesn't invalidate the gender-distinctive responsibility the Bible establishes for the church, but it does certainly imply the full partnership of women in the new creation ministry of Jesus Christ. And not only is this a display of his elevation of women, it is even more importantly a profound display of his overwhelming grace to a great sinner. A woman who had once been possessed by seven demons, whose lifestyle, no doubt, reflected the wicked filthiness of those satanic agents who exercised control over her. Jesus gives the highest honor to her who had the most of sin. Don't you ever, ever think that your shameful past can get to keep you from getting close to this Savior. You who have been the most sinful can become among those who are the nearest and dearest to Jesus. The last can be and shall be among the first. So Mary now, she returns to the tomb crying, hoping to find someone who could enlighten her regarding the body of Jesus. And she does find two. But they're certainly much different than anyone you'd expect she'd find. Notice verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she, she stooped down and, and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Luke's Gospel, it says that the garment of these angels gleamed like lightning. Picture the scene. You have to picture it in your mind. Brilliant, radiant, majestic, glorious angels in an empty, dark tomb. John's point? The question of the missing body is not to be explained by grave robbers. But, to, but it is the invasion of divine power. Which is the reason now for the following question in verse 13. Then they said to her, that's the angels, Woman, why are you weeping? You would never laugh 
at the scene of a fatal car accident. You'd never express sorrow at the birth of a baby. These emotions are inappropriate, giving the respective context. And you can see that's exactly what is right here. These angels are not seeking information. Why are you crying? I, I, I just want to understand. No, they're conveying astonishment, implying that sorrow is not the appropriate emotion given this context. Why are you weeping? Notice Mary's response and the affection that's bound up with it. She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. See, friends, Mary has come to this place hoping for the small consolation of completing the burial process and has been left that has been left unfinished on the prior Friday. Now it appears even this has been denied her. But while she is speaking, somehow, in some way, she becomes mindful of a presence standing behind her. Does he clear his voice? <clears throat> does, does she hear the sound of the sandals scraping across the ground? Do the angels motion to her to look behind? Verse 14. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? It's basically the same question, right, that, that the angels ask, and there's actually a mild rebuke in the original language. Why are you, of all things, crying? The question that follows is something of an invitation for Mary to reflect upon the kind of Messiah that she's been expecting. Notice the last part of verse 15. Whom are you Seeking. Church, you see that she loves Jesus, but her estimation of him was far too small. She knew that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. She knew that, that he had made the claim, I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus is saying, what benefit is a dead Messiah to you? Of what benefit is a dead Savior? Who is it that you're looking for? And yet, she loves Jesus so. Think about it. Think about it, friends. The upheaval that she has experienced during these last few days. She witnesses the crucifixion of Jesus in all its unspeakable horrors. An emotional trauma that would strain the strongest of human beings. It's not a leap to assume that she probably doesn't sleep very well over the next two evenings, if at all. Replaying in her mind over and over the horrifying images of the cross and Jesus' burial in the tomb. 
While it's still dark on that Sunday morning, she returns to the place of burial, runs back to tell the disciples that the body of Jesus has been taken away, then comes back to the tomb once again. My point, you have every good reason to believe that Mary is physically and emotionally spent. And now, she's prepared to carry away the body of Jesus by herself? Verse 15. She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Really? The weight of a dead man? A corpse in which rigor mortis has set in, wrapped in 75 pounds of spices, not including the weights of the linen wrappings themselves? How is she going to carry away the body of Jesus? And where is she going to take it? These questions never even crossed her mind. She just loves Jesus so. So why... Why doesn't she recognize Jesus when he speaks to her? We know it's dark, right? We know that she's been weeping. But I think there's something else going on here. It's a phenomena that we often find in the post-resurrection appearances that Jesus Christ is not always immediately recognizable, at least not until he wills to reveal himself. I think it's related to the uniqueness of his resurrection body. It's a real body. It can be touched and it can be handled. We'll see that in a minute. It certainly bears the identifiable marks of his crucifixion. In fact, the Gospel of Luke, we actually read of Jesus eating a meal with his disciples in his resurrected body. At the same time, however, the resurrection body is able to rise through its grave clothes. Close. It, it can also appear in a suddenly, um, suddenly in a locked room. You say, explain this to me today. I just have. Not very helpful, is it? I know. I've never seen a resurrection body, and my guess is you haven't either. Nor does the Bible furnish us with any detailed analysis of its physical properties. It only tells us that such bodies are imperishable, glorious, and powerful. But here, Mary intuitively assumes that Jesus is the gardener. That's another sermon for another time. But she assumes Jesus is the gardener. Don't forget, we're told earlier, that this is a new tomb and it was in a garden. So how does Jesus make himself known to Mary? This is my thought. In referring to himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10, Jesus says, the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name. When you love somebody, and you know that person loves you, and you hear that person speak your name, you can identify it in an instant, can't you? And here, the good shepherd does that very thing. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, 
Mary. And Mary knows this voice. She can't believe what she thinks she hears, and in an instant her anguish is swallowed up by astonishment. She turned and said to him, Rabbani, which is to say teacher. Oh, my friends, how can we imagine this? Think about a mother. Think about a mother who's, who is reunited, reunited with her perfectly healthy son only after having been mistakenly told that he has been tragically killed overseas. And yet, when she opens that front door, there's, there's, there he stands, and there's uniting of the eyes, and there's this momentary disbelief, and then there's an embrace that defies interruption. Matthew's Gospel tells us that Mary falls to the ground and grasps his feet. No doubtly so tightly his toes begin to blue. She let go of him once before. She's not about to do it a second time, so she grabs on for all she's worth. She loves him so. But notice verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. Now, my friends, you need to be very careful with this. Jesus is not forbidding Mary from doing something that is inherently wrong. Later that same evening, he will tell his disciples, touch me, I'm not a ghost. And a week later, he actually commands doubting Thomas, put your fingers here, reach out your hand and thrust it into my side. If you think about it, to not touch Jesus at that time would have been disobedience. Jesus never prevents anyone from touching his resurrection body. You say, well, David, he's, he's definitely forbidding Mary from doing something here. Well, let's let the text, the verse itself, interpret itself. Look at it. Do not cling to me. Why? The verse continues, for or because I have not yet ascended to my father. Actually, the verb tense here in the original reads more like this. I have not yet entered into the ascended state. Now, friends, what does Jesus mean by this? On several occasions prior to his crucifixion, Jesus informs his disciples that he's going away that he's returning to his father, and in John 14 even, going away for the purpose of preparing a place for them. And then, subsequent to his going away, which includes his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he will return to be with them forever. And Mary thinks that's what this is. She has seen his death, and burial, don't forget, his physical presence with her now obviously makes clear that his resurrection has occurred. So naturally she assumes that Jesus has already ascended to his Father and returned again just like he promised. Meaning what? He's here, back again, to be with us forever. She loves Jesus so. But bless her heart, her understanding hasn't kept pace with her love. 
Jesus has not yet entered into his ascended state. He has not yet ascended to his Father's right hand. All of which means this is not the second coming for the purpose of consummating the new creation. It is a resurrection appearance for the purpose of verifying his inauguration of the new creation. It's a lot like being a fiancé. We've had some new marriages here recently. Ladies, you know this, right? The commitment is already made, the marriage license has been secured, the honeymoon has been paid for, and you've been given the engagement ring, the first installment and pledge of everything that will be yours ultimately. So you're happy, you're excited, the future is secure, people are congratulating you, even now they, they throw parties in anticipation of that day. But it's not the consummated state which means that you live in the sometimes exciting, sometimes frustrating anticipation of the wedding with all its promised benefits. It's no coincidence that the engagement period is often the most stressful season in the life of a young couple. And my point is, this is the present experience, the here and now experience of the Christian life. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the former age has reached its destination. The future age has been inaugurated. The new creation has begun, but it's not yet arrived in full, so that all of its consummated perfection, including unimpeded intimacy with God and Jesus and with his people, is presently at best something we can only anticipate. But given the way that Mary here is clutching on to Jesus, he knows she's erroneously hoping for something that is not yet. Something that has only been promised for the future. And yet, my friends, though not consummated, the new creation has been inaugurated, which means we, there are now present tense benefits to the experience because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hence then, back to my original question, what can the resurrection of Jesus Christ change for you? It can change the most significant relationships in your life. In particular, it can change your relationship to God the Father, it can change your relationship to Jesus, and it can change your relationship to people. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Mary, instead of trying to possess me as though the time has come for me to stay forever, Mary, I have a job for you to do. It continues, but, or instead, go to my brethren, my brothers, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and to your Father, and to my God, and to your God. Can you hear it? It's the revolutionizing of relationships. It's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ can change for you. Relationships can be different, not perfectly different, 
not yet, but significantly different. They have been revolutionized by the resurrection. Notice, take note of what Jesus says about your relationship to God. Your relationship to God. He says to Mary, tell these men that I'm ascending to my God. Now, nothing revolutionary about this, is there? Jesus shares a unique relationship with God. I I think we all understand that. However, here is what is so amazing. Jesus tells Mary to refer to God in the hearing of these disciples as your God. Now, you understand as 21st century cocky, arrogant Americans, we have no difficulties talking about, you know, my God over and against your God, as though somehow God is defined by our belief in him. That's not what he's talking about here, friends. This is infinitely more. There was history in these words. That when God delivers Israel out of Egyptian bondage at the Exodus, he enters into a covenantal relationship with them. And these were God's wedding vows with Israel. I will be your God and you will be my people. It calls our attention to the very heart of what a covenantal relationship is. A mutual belonging to one another. I will belong to you. You will belong to me. We are bound to each other. That's how it would have been heard to these ears of these Hebrew disciples. I am ascending to my God and your God. It's a declaration of a covenantal intimacy that has been established that by virtue of the greater exodus, delivered deliverance by the way of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus himself, Christians in God now belong to each other. And if this isn't enough, listen to what sounds even more shocking to their ears. I am ascending to my Father. Again, nothing to dispute here, right? Jesus is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, however, or what is, however, revolutionary is when Jesus adds, and your Father. Do you understand that in the Old Testament it's nearly unheard of for someone to refer to God as their father? It speaks of an intimacy of relationship that very few would ever claim. Yeah, Adam, right, is referred to as God's son, but Adam failed. Then Israel is referred to as God's son, But Israel fails. And so, representatively, kings, Israel's kings, like David, are occasionally referred to as God's son. But they all fail. But then, a son arrives on the scene of human history who is the son. The ultimate son of whom the father himself says, this is my beloved son. And now, when you embrace this Savior, this Son as Savior, by virtue of His death, burial, and resurrection, amazingly, you become a full family member. An adopted son or daughter. 
and I realize this, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a risk, but I realize this, I'm tempted to overstatement at this very point. But you need to understand, this is at the very essence of authentic Christianity. You, have, you may have all kinds of crazy notions rumbling around in your head that may have been hoisted upon you by some muddle-headed Christian, but here is authentic Christianity in its purest and truest sense. You can have God as your Father. Not merely to acknowledge Him as your Creator, which is true. Not merely to affirm Him as your Savior, which is true but to have God as your Father. It's the greatest of all the blessings achieved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you've not been brought into the house to exist as a servant, that you've not been brought inside to enjoy a measure of familiarity as a friend. If you, my friends, embrace Jesus Christ, it means that you've been given the right to become a child of God with all the privileges and all the prerogatives that accompany that status. That He is your God suggests His great power. That He is your Father implies a love and affection that is equal to that power. What can the resurrection of Jesus Christ change for you? Firstly, it can change your relationship to God. Secondly, it can change your relationship to Jesus. If God is your Father, and Jesus is your Son, what does this tell you about your relationship to Jesus? That He is not just your King, though He is. That He is not just your Lord, though He is. That he is not just your savior, though he is. In addition to all of these, he is something far more intimate and personal and relational. He, as he expresses right here to Mary, look at it again in verse 17. But go to my brethren, brothers, brothers. Up until this point, Jesus has referred to these men as servants. He certainly has referred to them as disciples in the past. In fact, just a few days before this, he had spoken to them in the most intimate terms he had ever used. I have called you friends. But brothers? How can this be, especially now? Peter, James, and John, they slept in the Garden of Gethsemane when, when Jesus had asked them to pray. Peter denies Jesus three times, taken upon a curse. And the rest of the disciples, they, they all abandoned him for the sake of sparing themselves. Well, maybe Jesus could have condescended to, the regard, to regard them as brothers prior to that fateful night, but now... After their great fall, you and I would completely understand had Jesus said, listen, listen, I called you friends when you were faithful, but you, given your great failure to me, when I needed your allegiance most, frankly, it would be a stretch just to call you servants. But here, that's nothing of the kind. 
Instead, his affection for these disciples is now more intimate than ever before. It's it's as if grace grows stronger as their sin gets deeper. That where their sin increased, grace increased all the more. Are you here this morning as a Christian whose love for Jesus has grown cold? Maybe indifferent, maybe cavalier, maybe you're, you're a bit amazed at yourself, at how far you find yourself from him today. Let this melt your icy heart. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Now, for the very first time, Jesus refers to his fallen followers as brothers, as family members. Oh yes, my friends, he is the glorified Christ, ascended to heaven and and has been installed as the universal Lord of all. But it seems the higher his dignity, the lower his condescension. Don't forget, after all, his nature is still like our nature. That being a man, it means that he can sympathize with your every weakness. That he's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. The higher our Savior gets, the freer he is in his expression of love. The further you run from him, the more lovingly he calls himself you back to himself. What can the resurrection of Jesus Christ change for you? It can change your relationship to God. It can change your relationship to Jesus. And lastly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ can change your relationship to other people. It can change your relationship to other people. My friends, if you have Jesus Christ as your brother and consequently, God as your father, what does that imply about your relationships to other people who also have Jesus as their brother and God for their father? It implies that despite your distinctive ethnicity, your distinctive color, your social status, your educational achievement, your denominational affiliation, you are now bound together eternally to every other person who genuinely has God for their father and Jesus for their brother in, in a way that surpasses every biological relationship. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has given birth to a family, a transcendent family, a blood-bought family that will exist in everlasting intimacy. My brother Raymond, Raymond, have you ever noticed when he talks to you or he corresponds with you in a text or an email, he, he... just never fails to identify you this way, brother. I try to use that lingo, and some of you might say, well, that's, that's really old school, you know. That's, that's not the, the type of lingo we say here anymore, brother, sister. But I know we get a laugh out of it. Raymond actually uh, is about the age, I'm old enough to be his father, 
So it's not really that old school, right? So can you understand this? Uh, I'm not offended by it in the least when you think that it's old, but I do know this. It's a great practice to use this language intentionally. Because it explicitly conveys something that is very much real. Something that is a direct consequence of God's great redeeming work. We share the same paternity. God is our Father. We share the same bloodline flowing from the veins of our elder brother Jesus. We share the same spiritual DNA, the result of a new birth produced inside of us by the Spirit of the living God. It is a new family for a new creation that transcends the best family experience that is known in this world, marred by the virus of human sin. A family brought into existence by the res resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But go instead to my brethren, my brothers, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and to your Father, and to my God, and to your God. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things to her. What things? That the resurrection changes everything what can the resurrection change of jesus christ change for you it can change right now your relationship to god your relationship to jesus and your relationship to people to other christians and that's, of course, because we have become intimate family members. But also, you have to remember this, in a very real sense, to people everywhere. Because you see that one of the distinguishing features of a person who truly has God for their father and Jesus for their brother is that they long for everyone else to become part of this family with them. To those here today who have not trusted in Jesus this morning without shame and on behalf of every other Christian in this room, we want you to become a Christian. Now you say, but God could never love me. I've hated him, I've rejected him, I've despised him, I've demeaned him, I've mocked him, I've sinned greatly against everything he deems to be right and good. And that may be the very case. But the resurrection changes everything. If you remember nothing else, about this sermon, friends. Let this one thing forever ring in your mind. The sweetest assurances in the Bible are for the very people who deserve them the least. The sweetest assurances in the Bible are not for good people. They're not for moral people. They're not for people who pat themselves on the back. 
has those who don't drink and those who don't smoke and those who don't chew and those who certainly don't vote Democratic. The sweetest assurances in the Bible are for the very people who deserve them the least. A demon-possessed woman like Mary Magdalene. Hypocritical, cowardly disciples like Peter and John. And you. And me. You can have God for your brother. You can have Jesus for your, or God as your father. You can have Jesus for your brother. And you can have his people for your eternal family. How? By turning away from yourself and your sin and trusting in the resurrected Christ who changes everything. Would you bow your heads with me, please? My dear friends, I don't want to put words in your mouth. And the fact of the matter is, you can repeat all of the right words. And if your mind and heart are not engaged, all those words will be of no avail. But if you know this morning that your life must change, and that only Jesus can change it, and that he is your only hope for a new life, that your only hope for a relationship with the living God is by trusting in the death, burial, resurrection of this one, this one who is your Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, then you, my friends, can embrace him right now. Just tell him so. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come here and worship you. We thank you for the ability to celebrate mothers. Lord, once more, hear our praises as we declare our worship in response to your word. In your son's matchless name we pray. Jesus. Amen.